Welcome to Radar. This program can be heard at thevinyldistrict.com or anywhere fine podcasts are found. Here is your host, Evan Toth. Life is full of twists and turns, unexpected chapters. Sometimes we recall certain times and experiences, and they bear resemblance to vivid dreams. So much so, we might even ask ourselves, did that really happen? We evolve, we move on, but no matter where we go, we carry those adventures with us, even if we're not always aware of the influences. The life of May Pang took an unexpected detour in her early 20s when she became romantically involved with one of the most famous people on planet Earth, John Lennon. While this period of Lennon's life is often described as a debaucherous tangent, Pang, who was there at his side through it all, explains it with a bit more context in the new recently released film that she's involved in, The Lost Weekend, A Love Story. The film tells the tale of how Pang and Lennon met and Yoko Ono's unique role in their relationship. It also explores Pang's association with many of the ancillary characters in Lennon's life. Even though the Beatles' biography has been exhaustively documented, Pang's film offers a few surprises that only a true insider would be able to share. May Pang allows me the luxury of asking some things I've always wanted to know. Perhaps I ask a few questions that you've always wanted to know about this somewhat mysterious episode. Let's learn about the ballad of John and May. So thanks so much for taking time out to do this. Uh, I watched the movie. I really enjoyed it. And uh, it's, a, it's a real pleasure to meet you. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm so glad that uh, you liked it. Um, when did you see it? Actually, I saw it last night. Okay. So I'm, I'm fresh. I'm fresh with it. Well, I love the story. It starts out as a, a, a Chinese Catholic girl from New York City who has a love affair with John Lennon. It's, it's like a Martin Scorsese movie. And what an amazing story. And, you know, tell our audience just a little bit about, you know, your younger years in New York City growing up. And in, in retrospect, you know, when you, when you think back to your youth and people will find out more if they watch the film, which they should watch because it's a, ter- a terrific film. But what are some things that you really remember about that, um, uh, you know, being born and raised in in New York City? You know, I was born and I'm, you know, in in, um, Harlem first and my parents, we moved to the projects. You know, we didn't come from these fancy places that maybe most people may think. But, you know, I grew up in the projects in in Manhattan and I, I, you know, Spanish Harlem was really where most of my childhood and um my mother was smart enough to put me in the catholic school because that was the best school system right believe me it was really tough because my father didn't believe in anything my mother was buddhist and i fell into the going to the catholic school and it turns out later on i find out that that particular catholic school uh the church that's where um James Cagney went to. Oh, no kidding. So, yeah. And I was really surprised. Um, so it, that area was really just, um, was really different. You know, you would see Cicely Tyson walk by and Nestor Rowley because they were in the neighborhood. They lived up there. They were in the neighborhood. So, it, you know, yeah, they lived in the neighborhood. You know, uh, Spanish Harlem back then was not exactly the place you want to be it's a little more gentrified i've passed by these days and i right. said well it looks a little different but the but the um projects are still there and 
it was it was a bit dodgy, I would say, when growing up. You know, you're lucky you're not getting beaten up or anything else. You right. know, with with kids. Um. So, but you know, I was the first born on um, to be born in America on either side of my family. You know, yeah. My sister, every all my first cousins are born in China, so I was always referred to as the outsider. Right. So it was really difficult. Yeah. Yeah, when you're born as the outsider, you know nothing. Right. They consider you a little stupid. Right, right, right. And well, and you got a little older, and these were the days when a young lady could just walk into somewhere like Abco and uh, say, "Hey, I'm. Uh, I'd be interested in getting a job here." You know, can you explain for people that that sort of level of access that you know we're so? Um, uh, I guess our our world right now is so. Uh, closed in and you know you how do you how do you gain access especially in the entertainment industry but you know i love the part of the story where you just kind of walked in and said hi you know and they were impressed by your uh presentation and uh said yeah come on we got it we got it we got something that we could do with you well you know it was back then you know you're looking at the time frame you're talking you know early 70 late actually it was late 60 it was 69 69 right uh yeah so that was a big big year for a lot of people whatever it may be um and i i hated school i hate to say it. i hated school it was not anything i liked and i quit after a year of college right and i decided okay my mother i, I was believe me i was afraid of, to tell my mother i quit school right and then my mother said okay you know how to speak English, you know, go get yourself a good job. Now, I had no skills, none. I was in an academic courses, no no uh, secretarial courses. I don't know how to, didn't know how to type, didn't know how to anything. So, and back in those days, they had um, employment agencies, as right. which we don't, I don't think we have them yeah, here not now. not really, right? Or, right? Not really, right? So, yeah, I walked in and... They sent me on a, a job. They said, what skills do you have? Nothing. So they said, well, listen, um, there's a, a, you know, a place. Uh, they need a receptionist. You can answer phones. I said, well, I could do that. That part I could do. So I go there, and it happens to be in the same building as APCO, Apple, and whatever, because Alan Klein had just acquired being the administrator to Apple Records and becoming right. New York, right? So I get I go to the uh, receptionist job interview i knew it wasn't going to happen they're japanese i'm chinese <laughs> we're like oil and, and water apart, type of right, thing worlds apart worlds apart i just knew it so i come downstairs my girlfriend decides she's going to meet me and i go to the directory she goes you know what's in this building i said no she goes apple records and i look at her and i said what are you talking about so i look at the directory and there it is apple records and i apple. said oh wow i'm going to go and ask him for a job and she says, you're nuts. And I say, why? I said, if they tell me no, I'm no worse off than I am now, right? right. So I went up there. I write, exactly. So I went upstairs and there was a woman at the desk. And I said, uh, I just want to know if you have any job openings. And she says, not that I know of. Now, she was not the regular receptionist. She was not, you know, she was just relieving another person. Uh, so I turned around and I said, hey, Let's let's uh, leave it at that. And I said, okay. And I'm staring at the four walls. What I am looking for, I have no idea. You know, you go someplace, you go, right. did they touch that wall or whatever? So I'm right. standing like this. And she goes, 
what are you looking for? Is there something else? And he said, I just want to know if the Beatles ever came up here. Yeah. And she says, and she just chuckled and she said, no. <laughs> just at that moment, two doors on either side of the receptionist desk opens and people are just pouring out. Right. I had no idea. I'd just seen them. They were coming out for lunch. So had not known that. Wow. I said, lunch. Yeah. Talk about, you know, the, the right timing, you know. Right. So they were coming out and she turns around and she says, hey, this girl's looking for a job. And one guy turns around and says, we might have something. Come back after lunch. There you go. There you go. And I went for the interview. They hired me. I ended up in the uh, royalties department because, you know, music publishing and royalties and all sorts. They say, can you type? Can you do it? Yeah, sure. Sure. Nothing. Right. But I started work on Monday and that was it. And I was yeah. happy I got a job. Well, and again, back to your mom. I mean, the the story, uh, again, people will uh, learn about this, but your mom was, uh, you had that same instinct where your mom built her own company and was a very uh, strong, confident business person herself. And you had some of that too. And you, you, you must have learned from her experience and from her successes uh, that, you know, you could just do this. You know what? I had more confidence then than I do now. Let's put it that way. As I'm getting older, you start going, no, I don't think I could do that anymore. Right. You know, you, you start being hesitant. But you know what? Um, I'm glad she gave me that confidence. I'm glad, you know, back then it's like, hey, what did I have to lose? Right. 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 So, and it worked. And it, um, and, and I, all I wanted to do was be in the music business, uh, learn something, which I did. I learned a lot because, Alan Klein had the best music publishing, which I love about music was to learn about who are the songwriters, uh, how did they get there? You know, so it, a lot of people realize now, of course, not everybody that wrote the song, sang the song. Right. Um, you know, you just had to do all that. And I was just learning a whole lot of, you know, information and changing uh, stuff around, you know, with uh, the the um, titles and where he goes and I he had the best and I say that it's the best learning curve you know he had um first off we still he had still the Rolling Stones so he was still managing the Rolling Stones at that time right, so sure not only the busy. Beatles but he had the Rolling Stone yeah right. so and we also had the so the Stones catalog we had the Beatles Apple catalog along with three of the Beatles right, right. minus so Paul Solo stuff, right? Right. And then, right, those are the solo stuff. We had um, Cameo Parkway, you know, Question yep. Mark and the Mysterians, Chubby Sam Checker. Sham, right? Bobby Chubby Rydell, Checker. Chubby Checker. Right. All those. So that's those, that right there is that three. Um, Sam Cooke. We mm -hmm. had the Sam Cooke catalog as well. So, you know, it was so uh, big and so... And it's a lot of the songs. Sam Cooke was great. I mean, you know, you look at that catalog. Yeah. Dancing the Night Away and all that, you know, Bring It On Home to Me. Absolutely. It it, it kept me busy and I and I enjoyed that. You know, I like learning about all, all the copyrights and what you had to do. In fact, when um, years later, when uh, George had his All Things Must Pass and I, the stuff had to be copyrighted in New in America. I got a chance to do that one. I did the original copyright in New oh, York, no you know, in New York. Yeah. So I said to, I remember going, 
well, how do I copyright this? I don't know what he's saying. And it was, you know, when he was singing his prayer and all, um, my sweet Lord. And I'm going, I don't know. And they, I said, what should I do? They said, call him. I said, call him. <laughs> you know, you start getting nervous. You go, call him. I said, all right. So I called him and I said, you know, I got to copyright your song, but I don't know what you're saying. He goes, it's a prayer. He goes, get your pen and paper out. He goes, I will say it. And he was so kind. Right. And he was, uh, and he went with me and he just said, this is how you, you know, you say it and this is how you write it. And he just, the whole thing, he was wonderful. Right. That's funny. And nowadays, of course, you would probably have Zoomed with him, uh, just like we're doing now. It would have been a George Harrison Zoom <laughs> and he would have been saying the prayer for you and you'd have, uh, that, but yeah, that's, that's interesting. But that's, then also you have that thing on, on, on the, what was it on your uh, phone or something? You go dictation and it would just do it for you, you know? Right, right. You, the, uh, the, what do they call it? The Shazam or whatever it is. Yeah. So, you yeah, worked, it's, it's, so eventually you got connected with uh, John and Yoko, of course, in New York City. And soon uh, they went back to the UK as I follow the story and correct me if I'm wrong, right. I may be uh, incorrect. And you were invited to join them in the UK to do what you were doing for them here uh, in the New York, States yeah. uh, there. And could you just describe a bit the feeling, you know, when you were chosen, were you apprehensive? You were excited. Why do you think, I, I guess I imagine it was Yoko's decision really to bring you over from New York City. Um, you know, why do you think she chose you rather than finding someone a little more local simply? I Well, here was the thing. Uh, I don't know if it was Yoko's decision or both decision. Interesting. But I know that I was to go because they needed a film that was here in the States ah. and it needed to be brought over. And they wanted someone to bring it over instead of sending it through. They said, uh, we want you to bring it over. In actuality, the film is actually, a, it's a short. It was one of John's films. It was a very clever idea. He had a photographer stand in the place uh, and for a year, watch this building being uh -huh. broken down, taken down, took a photo every day, and then watched it being built again in mm. place of where that whole building came down. So every day, and then it became like a rotogravure where they just, you know, they flipped it. So you, it was all done from photos as opposed to a film. Right. You know, right. So it was great. And the photographer was Ian McMillan who did it. I don't know who that is. And that, oh, oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. You stumped me. Who's Ian McMillan? Yes. He took one of the most famous photographs in the world. Go ahead. What is it? Ian McMillan. Oh, Abbey okay. Road. Okay. That's right. I think I recognize the name now. Now I can see it. Now I see it in print somewhere. <laughs> He's the Abbey Road. So he had already done Abbey Road and, and John knowing him through the, through the Beatles, through that album. Right. So that's what he did. I had conversations with Ian and I became very uh, good friends. So we would have, he says, I said, did you really stand there every day doing, he says, no, every couple of days I go out there, exact spot. Right. And believe me, he was very precise in how he did things. Exact spot and just took a photograph in that same position. Interesting. So he, he knew, he knew yeah. what he was doing. He knew how to do this. Oh my God. I, you know, he, he was amazing. And, um, you know, some of the photographs that he, he took at me when I turned 21, he says, I want to give you this gift. And I said, what's that? He goes, I want to take pictures of you 
And he signed one of them saying May at 21, just so I remember what it looked uh, like, I guess, at that time. That's sweet. That's sweet. Yeah. So could you describe for me and, uh, you know, what were kinds of what were the things that you did on a day to day with uh, with Johnny Yoko? I know the movie, of course, touches on it that uh, you I, I think if I were to answer your question, you didn't always know what to expect. It was something different all the time. But what were some of the things? I mean, what it was a cool job. It was a cool job, but it was a long job. After a while, it's not glamorous as anybody would think, you know, because everybody right. thinks oh, you're working for them. After a while, they are John and Yoko, two people that I work for, and that is it, you know. Right. And you do your job, and the job is in the morning. I, um, when we came back to the states, I mean, they had other people. I'm not the only one. Right. We had there was several people around, but it depends on what where you are. So in in um, when I brought the film over to England, uh, they had like maybe three people, four people that worked for them, you know, and everybody had a, everybody had something different to do. Mm -hmm. I just remember going there and one of the women said to me, ah, you recognize this? And it was all the clothes I had packed up in New York were now hanging on the, on the you know, on the clothes hanger. And I said, oh, boy, do I remember that because I packed them like four steamer trunk full, you know, right. of clothes. Right. And so uh, we were doing it. And I didn't know how long I was supposed to be there. They just said, you're just going. And I thought I was going to come right back. And they just kept me there for a while. Right. And I remember Yoko coming to me and saying, uh, you're going with me tomorrow. And I said, oh. And then you, it's in the film where I said, you know, so we've got to, because we've got to pack clothes. I have a photo shoot. Okay. I said, Okay. And I remember, and when I found out who the photographer was, you know, I was like even more thrilled because, you know, as a as a novice at that point of taking my camera and taking photos. And I said, oh, OK. And it was David Bailey. And if mm -hmm. nobody knows who, if you're if you're a, a, a photography enthusiast or whatever, that that he was it. And they did a movie on him in the 60s called Blow Up. And that was about him. Oh, I didn't put that together. I know, I know a blow up for sure, uh, and uh, yeah, Antonioni, but uh, and David Hemmings was the uh, was the photographer. Right. Yes, it's about David Bailey. Oh. See, I'm giving you some lessons I here. No, that's good. That's good. That's why I do this stuff. Um, uh, you know, there was and, and again, I don't want to. I'm not here to spoil anything in the movie because uh, people should. Oh, watch please it don't. I need people. Yes. And enjoy, but um, there is a sad part, you know, in in the beginning where uh, uh, between John, uh, you know, trying to contact Julian and Yoko's role in that, and uh, you were sort of a, a middle person, you know. How did you sort of, how did your uh, relationship go from working for them, doing what they needed you to do, and then it got, it, it seemed to then obviously it got a little personal, you know, do you remember that? shift that transition in like from hey i'm here to do a job into now i'm getting into something a little murkier oh absolutely i mean i just remember and i and i uh just remember coming in i was always early because to me you know just to get settled in the morning right so right i sure. grab my cup of coffee i put it on on the, on the table and i'm sitting there going okay and then you review what you're going to do for the day and we were in the middle of doing, um, we had just started Mind Games album. And I remember just sitting there and I just finished Yoko's album. I, I was doing her stuff as well. So it was just a little bit of everything. Right. So as I'm sitting there, 
And I remember because I would be like 9.30 in the morning because that's when I would just show up, even though we started at 10, you, you know, you get in early. Right. And I remember her coming into my office and she sat across from me and she goes, May, I got to talk to you. So the first thing you do is you take your pad, your pen, and you You're say, ready. all right, let's see what, right? Good for you. Get you. Ready. you were good. You were good, May. Well, you know what? You, you had to be on your toes. You, had to be on your you toes. just had to be on your toes. Um, and I just remember her saying, the first words out of her mouth was, you know, John and I are not getting along. And I said, oh, I'm so sorry. And anybody who was working in the house can feel the tension. Right. It was just there. But you're not going to acknowledge that you feel it. You know, sure. you just sort of say, I'm so sorry. And uh, she goes, well, you know, he's uh, he's going to he's going to start seeing other people. And as he as she's saying this in my head is I'm thinking, oh, God, somebody else added to the mix. Okay, you know, right. sorry. There's um, yeah, you know, you're thinking him, her X factor. Right. And um, then she she's talking and then all of a sudden I'm thinking, oh, all this is going on in my head. And all of a sudden she goes, oh, you don't have a boyfriend. And I just sort of like went, oh, uh, not me. <laughs> I'm right. not interested. She goes, oh, I know you're not interested in John, but and I thought, there's no but here. <laughs> I'm working. I'm on, you know, just don't bring that in. She goes, but you'll be, you'll be good for him. You'll be kind to him. And I said, no. And she said, and her thing was, well, you don't want him to go out with somebody that's not nice to him. I said, of course not, but I'm not it. And I kept saying that. And she said, oh, no, no, I think you'd be good for him. I said, oh, no, 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 no. And then she gets up and walks out of the room. Mm. So there was no arguing. With, you know, you couldn't really say no. There was nothing else to say. And I'm sitting there going, I literally sat there and kept saying to myself, what just happened? Yeah, did that just and happen? I didn't, I, and I didn't even, I'm thinking, I didn't even have my coffee yet. I, my whole head was just like it had exploded at that moment. Mm. So... It was uh, very strange, and, and I remember going, how am I going to face the date? And then she came in, and you know, she told me, she says, oh, John canceled for today, and I'm thinking, because we were supposed to go into the recording session, and I'm going, oh, thank God. I ran out of there so fast right. and went home thinking, what just happened? So that's how it actually began. Did you confide in, in friends, family, anybody? Did you have anybody to talk to outside? I, I'd imagine you're probably pretty insulated. A lot of those people that I would imagine your job was probably pretty intensive. You were on call. You were probably hanging out with everyone all the time. You probably didn't have too many people to talk to about it. Uh, no, there was maybe I think I, I spoke to one person. I went home crying, yeah. literally crying. I know people say, oh, but John Lennon, it's not like that. That's no, not somebody I was looking for. You know, I'm not, it was not something that I wanted to do or was woman. even interested. Yeah. And that was not, that was not my, that was not my interest here. Right. You know, he's not, he, to me, was John and Yoko and leave me alone. I'm over here working. Right. And it just didn't happen the way, you know, uh, and it just kept going. And I, he kept, he stayed in his room. I was in my office thinking, I hope I don't have to see anybody because now I'm embarrassed. I said, where do we go? I mean, I think I talked to, I was afraid to talk to anyone really about mm -hmm. anything because I thought, this is just too crazy. How do I say anything to anyone? So you're right. I was very insulated on that. And uh, 
it was very tough. It was really very, um, I don't even know. I just, I, I didn't know all the feelings, you know, all these emotions kept coming up. And I just remember on the way home crying, mm. you know, tears were just, you know, people looking at me and I'm just sort of like brushing away the tears, people not, you know, knowing what was going on in my head. Well, it's but, New York City. Um, there are a lot of people crying on the subway, you know. Yes. <laughs> you Where are you? Yeah. I'm in I know. Jersey. Where are you I'm located? In Jer- I'm, I'm not oh, okay. far. You know. I'm, I'm only about uh, uh, 25 minutes away as the crow. Fl- without traffic, 25 minutes away. I'm not well, far. Well, I was just going to say 25 minutes with traffic or without. Without <laughs> is uh, is one thing. With, that could be three hours by are the you, time you get here. Are you in New York now? Yes, I am. Yeah. yeah. Is that where you're living? I I. Yes, and I uh, very hard to leave. I'm a yeah. New Yorker. I mean, yeah. you know, I've you could go every place else. You could live. I mean, I've I've really lived in um, my other home would have been uh, London, but you know when I got married. But right. really, I call my home. It's New York. New York. You're a New Yorker. Yeah, I'm um, a New Yorker. Uh, the film, I was surprised and, and glad that the film features, you've got a lot of authentic clips and usage of John's music and recordings. And how did you, you know, go about securing those rights? Maybe some of your, um, maybe some of your copyright experience came in handy there. I don't know. Was it difficult? I, I know it's not easy to use a lot of those things, but you seem to get what you needed and used it and it really makes an impact. And that's the stuff why you have a producer and the line producer that took care of everything. Right. Um, they, they, they did everything. And, you know, uh, obviously it was all checked. It was all uh, done right. You know, yeah. what, what is necessary to do all of that, you know, um, I'm glad I didn't have to do all of that. I just want you to know it was a lot of work. Yeah. I, okay. uh, you know, it would, yeah, it was a lot of work. There was, uh, you know, you got to go through, a lot of channels and, and making sure that everything's done right. And that's what we did. And um, it, yeah, I remember someone saying to me, uh, they had a movie, they wanted it done. And it, I forgot it was, um, uh, I think it was, it was about somebody out of Liverpool. And I, they started it like three years before me, you know, the movie. Right. And I said, what happened to yours? And they said, I didn't get the rights. I said, you didn't check. They said, I thought I had the rights. I said, you didn't check. Right. No matter what you do, you yourself should be checking it because it's your movie. Right. You want to be sure. One. And it was, they. I mean, it's done now, but it took them, it's been delayed for so many years because of it. And you got to look at everything and what you're allowed to do and what you can do and what you can't do. Right. Was there any issue with anything that uh, was there anything that Yoko had to sign off on or uh, anything that she had to approve or anything like that, that that was, you know, maybe in contention? Not to my knowledge. I mean, that's something that the the um, the people who were dealing with the all the legal stuff. Right. It was all done. You they, know, everything's up to up to par. You had a good team. Uh, obviously, if it didn't if it didn't work, we wouldn't be having it in the movie. That's for sure. <laughs> you would have heard about it. Uh, you probably would. I would have heard about it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> um, the weird thing in the story uh, in the beginning, which I didn't really uh, realize. I guess I didn't know the time frame. Um, you know, even though Yoko more or less set this affair up, um, she didn't send you guys to L.A. You you and John sort of began your time together in New York City. And I guess you were still working for Yoko at the same time. I guess you were kind of working for both of them separately, if, if I sort of 
Yes, it's true. I was working for both, uh, both having a project all at the same. You know, it's, it was hard to split uh, me up in different places. And right. I guess I guess um, I became to the point where when they were working album, uh, she was working on Feeling the Space album, which was a great album, you know, that she had done. And I loved working on it with all the musicians that were. It was the first time she got all the New York City musicians. Right. Um, working on it and no sooner she was finishing up when john came into me and said i want to go back into the studio and i looked at him and i said when do you plan to do that right and she says, well book it for in two weeks and i said okay now i'm finishing up with her right. he wants it in two weeks now i got to organize that one at the same time and um and it and I was only I was like the only one that was allowed to be in that session. He didn't want some of the other people that worked with me because we had one guy who would just walk in and has in the middle of the vocals and said, Would you want some coffee? Right. And he didn't want that to happen. No. So he's so I was the only one that was allowed to be at the session. And so and I was also in between working for Yoko, making sure that she was getting her press for her album. So I was I was working long hours so was that was there uh that would seem to me the most awkward part of almost this whole story sort of in the beginning where uh you know you're kind of with john but you're kind of seeing yoko was there uh, an incredible amount of tension there at, before you went to los angeles or this or this was kind of before anything officially was going on or what's the it was hers was already done okay we had already finished hers and we were just working on john's at that point I so see. and then she was doing different things and and yes there was a point that was an awkward bit it was for a short time it was an awkward bit there right. and i said to him i said I'm, i i don't want to be in the middle of this right. and you know and he kept saying all right he goes we just got to go somewhere and he was the one that just said we're going to la she had no idea uh she was gone away for the weekend as well right right so nobody knew everybody was doing all their different things on their own they were doing so their own with, stuff. they were all doing their own thing and i remember um uh harold Sider, who was john's personal lawyer was in town and he was going over papers with um with john and he looked at him he says and because he lived in la and he said when are you going back he goes this evening and he turned and john turns to me and he says book two seats we're going back with you you know and he says you're going back with me because yeah may and i are going to get on that plane now he had no idea that that you know i'm the one that's going to be going and not you know it wasn't yoko so it was right. me and john and john wanted to just spend time there was like what was going on part of the story of the lost weekend was john's freedom and his kind of relaxation and uh, his public image at that time was very much this sort of opinionated political figure and people forgot about the fun john the beetly side of john you know and and i think uh, your film does a great job of sort of showing how you brought that out how he brought that out of himself sort of being in los angeles can you uh, expound on that just a little bit that that sort of change in him there was a yeah it was it was a lot of fun we started to see friends you know we we ran into um andrew oldham who was of course course the former manager and producer for the rolling stones and we would run into uh and i you know harry nielsen right <laughs> um and then you know and there was different people that we were mickey dolan's and 
And then, of course, Phil Spector lived out there. So there was a whole lot of things. And and we were working, and also Tony King, who was the uh, uh, who was working for Apple in London, um, but now he was taking a holiday, as they would say, in right. in Los Angeles. And, uh, and he was telling us how much he he you know he was telling John how much he enjoyed the sunshine because in England there was no sunshine. Right, you know it's always gray. And um, John says you should move over here. How would you like it? One of your bosses said, hey, you should move over yeah, here. You come know? On over, yeah. And that's, yeah, come on over here. And it uh, it, it was great because uh, Tony King uh, knew a lot of people, knew what was going on. And he was staying with uh, the songwriter. Um, his name is Michael uh, Hazelwood, who wrote, who's the co-writer to It Never Rains in Southern California. Right, right. Yeah, right. So, and it was a lot of fun. We went. Uh, we drove back the the four of us back from um, from Las Vegas to uh, L.A. with a stopover in the Calico Ghost Town. Right. So it was, and it was just um, a lot of fun. And and he was the. We put him on the clock to work in a sense. Uh, he, he helped John understand to work the record because Mind Games was now coming out, and uh, it was it was interesting you know it was all that all that fun um all the all the he, he got the chance to now work with john that he had never done before right. you know they, they were really to, directly work yeah they seemed like they had uh, quite a, a a good friendship in the film well yeah because he also introduced us to one of his friends of course at that time the rising star of uh elton john right so and you know, and so we we all got together, and and um, and it was you could see the filming of the the mind the mind games uh, video, and it was funny. It was actually on my birthday, that whole thing. That's that right. That's place. right. That's a great. That's a great uh, part in the film. Uh, and of yeah. course, you also were uh, were there when they began the uh, the rock and roll album, which is really one of my favorite. John Lennon albums, believe it or not, I think it's a very underrated album in the oh catalog, my goodness. and I, I love that album <laughs> very much. And um, and it was these were wild times, and it's been very well documented. The, a lot of these uh, things, yeah, but some uh, of it's wrong. I'm going right. to say that now, right? That's and that's good. And I think and I think one of the cool things about the film is it 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 calms down that the the legend of just the wild you know, that the whole thing was was wild. You know, there there was a period and then there there was a, a different time, you know, that it wasn't uh, just a, a crazy. But, you know, when you look back on when you look back on it now with uh, more maturity, more wisdom and being, a you know, just a uh, an adult because you were so young then, you know, would you have done anything differently? Uh, would you have approached uh, anything, any, uh, you know, the back to the Hollywood vampires and all those guys and oh my God, like I'm, I can't even imagine. But would you have, uh, you know, my wife would have said, "Get out of here!" You know, <laughs> what are you doing? But how would you kind of uh, approach it now with with a little more wisdom? Probably a little more forceful. And I was, you know, I was twenty two, yeah, 20, 23, right, twenty two, twenty three, and uh, you know. I don't know how much more forceful I could have been with Phil. We used to argue all the time, yeah. really, because really? he was a. Because in our in our uh, recording sessions, when John did his recording session, we didn't have all this wildness. His idea 
was to work. If you come into work, yeah, you could do whatever you want after your job, not right. before, you know, you're being paid for this. And so he wants his, you know, his worth here. Right. Um, and he, uh, he was, we were just kind of shocked to see Phil was late mm. coming to work. At uh, one time, I think the first day was like three hours late. Um, he had drinks there that we never had in our sessions in, in New York. You know, you look and I said, what's this? You know, and then we didn't even know who was going to be at the session the first time. Right. He wouldn't tell us at all, except for maybe one or two on the whole. We had 27 musicians the first night. Unbelievable. He didn't tell us who. Yeah. Yeah. He didn't tell us. So I had to figure it out <laughs> and right. do all this because I'm coordinating this yeah. whole thing. And, I'm, and I remember Capitol Records calling me up going, um, do you know uh, where the bills are and all that stuff? And I'm sitting there going. Where are the bills? Wait a minute. We've already done several days. I don't know. Hold on. I said, how much do you have so far? And he goes, we've only gotten $3,000 worth. I said, something's wrong. Mm. So I we then found out that as time went on, Phil actually had diverted a lot of stuff to his company. Wow. And he actually took the tapes home. That's how we found out what was going on. And then he was kind of holding them Not hostage easy. from what I what I understand. Oh, right? he held I mean, it hostage. Right. Yeah. And Al Corey from, from Capitol Records finally negotiated um to get our tapes back and, and and did that. But John wasn't ready to to deal with that at the end because you know, it took so long to get there and then we went through so many other things. He says, I'm not ready to deal with my stuff. We did with uh John uh what was it, the walls and bridges before right. we dealt with the Rock and roll. And if you listen to it, you hear the Phil Spector versions and then you hear John's versions of Dick. It's a little different sounding, you know. Right. John's was a little cleaner, crisp, where, you know, you hear Stand By Me, which is John's, and then you hear um, Can't Catch Me, which is Phil. You know, there's right. a little, it's a little different. And I now see how he did the wall of sound. So, I mean, I'm fascinated by looking at all that, but it was definitely crazy when he's screaming, Lock the door. Give me the key. I want to swallow it so no one can leave. You know, this is what I was dealing with. Yeah, this on, is, uh, with this, with Phil. This is heavy, and also to think about John. You know, John had the work ethic, being the Beatle and doing all the things that they did in the '60s. He knew what a session was supposed to be and how how those guys at uh, you know Abbey Road and EMI or whatever would would put these things together, and they were very you know this was a job. And, right. and and then here we are in Phil Spector land and uh my goodness. Yeah, I mean, you know, everything became a little sloppy. Right. Uh, you know, there was all this stuff and you know, John to him, he only wanted to be a singer in the band. He didn't want to play anything, he didn't want to be producer. Right. Uh so he was loose in that sense because he says, Oh, I'm hanging out with the boys. Because, right. you know, he hadn't done that in a while, for years. So everybody's saying, oh, it's great to have the new kid on the block, which, of course, was John in L.A. in these sessions. And uh, I'm standing there going, tearing my hair out, going, I can't believe it. I mean, it got to the point where Phil was trying to take John somewhere. And I said, no, I'm coming with you. He goes, no, you're not. He actually had his bodyguard lift me physically, take wow. me out. Yeah, there you go. Oh my so, gosh. <laughs> yeah. Wild, wild so it, I was feisty about this whole thing. Believe me, I had to fight my way through a lot of things. You did. I believe you. Um, it's funny, you know, in this time of unidentified flying objects, uh, oh. in the news in, in 2023, it reminds us of this John Lennon story, of course, that always 
fascinated me where he uh, saw a UFO over New York City in 1974. And of course, who was standing right there next to him seeing the same thing? Uh, can you share that experience a little bit uh, that, you know, you're the only other firsthand witness of this, uh, uh, historical rock and roll story. It's, uh, yeah. It, you know, I don't know if you want to call it rock and roll. I just want you to know it was a story because he's out there and on a, on a, and I think being from New Jersey, I think you would understand this. We're talking a Friday night right? on, on, a on, a in the, in the summer. Okay. Nobody, you know, everybody's gone. They go to the Hamptons, sure. and in your case, the shore. Right. Nobody is, nobody's around in the city. It's dead, complete. And we had come from the studio. We had, I just ordered a pizza because I said I'm not cooking. It's too right. hot. And all I hear is John yelling out to me, going, "May, come out here!" And I'm going, I don't pay attention. And he's going. A second later, it's going, now, May, get out here. Now I hear the urgency, and I run out. Right. And I said, what are you? And I stop mid-sentence, and I see this thing hanging over our heads. And I'm going, oh, my God. He goes, yep, you're seeing what I'm seeing. I could hear no noise from this thing above our heads. Right. I could hear the, the cars below me in the streets. I could hear the helicopter across the river, because we, we live right near the East River. You're the East River, I could hear. Right. Everything else, nothing that was directly above over our heads. And it was complete saucer-like with uh, white lights going on and off around the rim and one red light. And I could see underneath the heat waves, you know, when it's really hot and you see those oh, okay. waves like okay. on the road. Sure. I could see all that underneath this this thing. And I'm like, oh, my God. And I always used to say at the time, I would say, if Reggie Jackson could hit a home run, he could hit this thing. That's how close it was, it was close. over our heads. Right. It was close. And came over. What attracted John was as he's, you know, out there, he's smoking his, I hated those French cigarettes. Jetons, um, jetons, right? He had yeah. Jetons. Exact, no, he no, he smoked the Galois, which was oh. the other one. Same oh. thing. Same okay. difference. Same difference. Stinks. <laughs> and he's smoking that. And he knew because I don't smoke cigarettes either. So it was nothing. So he's looking and he said something caught his eye. Light wise, you know, so because mm -hmm. you're in the dead of night, it's, you know, it's dark. And he said, oh, it's the billboard lights. And he realized he said, we don't have any billboards. We live in a residential area. Right. So as he turned his head, that's when this thing was over him. And he and it came very slowly. I mean, it literally came over the building next to us right where greta garbo lives you know it's just coming over yeah so and of, and well i've watched it, it for a long and, time and of course it went out to new jersey somewhere probably now it went out to brooklyn unfortunately oh i thought it went uh no no it went out to we went over the williamsburg bridge and made a left which is going and then yeah and right. it was funny because after when it got there it went down by the un and then it, then it went down to like 23rd street if you're uh, New York or understand it and then right. went over the bridge and then I thought oh my god it's going to Brooklyn and at that moment as we're saying that stopped over the bridge because I'm watching this whole thing in the distance if you're watching it it looked like anything else mm -hmm. but I watched it and then all of a sudden it just went straight up Unbelievable. and that was it I yeah. like when John's describing it and he says that it went by the UN and he sort of starts to chuckle and laugh at that that of all the of all places where it would make a turn the UN. Yes. 
That's exactly. I was like, it was just, uh, it was kind of interesting. I have all, I have his books that he used to get. Um, uh, I forgot if it, I guess it came in the mail. Um, UFO books. He loved those stories and, and you know, things right. like that. So I have them at, so Very I kept cool. them. Um, yeah. The last time that you spoke to John, this would have been in 1980. He mentioned, uh, you know, that uh, you, you, you might find a way to get together. And of course, the unthinkable happened. And I'm sure you thought about this uh, many years since his death. But, you know, do you think there was a continuing story for the two of you? Um, had history been different? You know, you're right. I, I think of that often. Over the five years that we split and, uh, in 75 to 80, right. I saw him and I heard from him. And when he called me, the, the last time he called me, he was losing track of time. And uh, I said to him, I said, you know, I hadn't spoken to you for a while. He says, yeah, because he had, you know, it was just like wherever he was. He just, right. no, no concept. And um, he said, I'm just trying to figure a way that we can ca catch up with each other. Mm. But he called me from, I said, where are you? He called me from Cape Town. I said, Cape Town, South Africa? Mm. Really? And he said, yeah, you know, Yoko sent me on uh, East Meets West trip again. Mm. And I said, okay, fine. And uh, I said, well, listen, I hope you're okay. We spent over an hour and a half on the phone. Wow. That's almost a long, two hours. Long talk. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was not one of those five, I just want to see how you are and then hang up. We right. talked, we talked about the different people who I've seen. Uh, are they okay? These were people that we knew together, you know, right. it's I, and he would say, I miss them, you know? So I said, okay. I said, I would also ask all the time, do you speak to Julian? Because that was always my one number one concern. You know, he's an 11-year-old boy and needs his father. And I was always concerned about that. And so he said, yeah, I do speak to him. I said, good. I hope you keep that up. Keep That's up. most important. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. there's, a, there's a very sweet moment at the end of the film, and I'm not going to spoil it, but it does go to show the emotionally stabilizing element that you brought, uh, not only to John, but to the whole circle. And it almost, it, it, in that moment, it's almost as if the story changes from being just about, you know, uh, John Lennon and you and the Beatles to a story about, you know, just a complicated family trying to figure out how to get by. And it becomes a story about love. And tell us what lessons, you know, you've learned about that universal concept of love within your experiences with John and his world, you know, going forward. And, and, and how, does, how does that sort of resonate now? You know, nothing is uh, black and white. There's a lot of gray areas and you see it now in this world. The, all the blended families, you mm -hmm. know, and, and it's there and, and you have to be a lot you know, there's a lot of forgiveness in there, a forgiving way of doing things. It's not when somebody says, oh, it can only be, be this way or that way. No, it can't be. Right. And, uh, and it's, and it's really, it's really trying to love one another and learn and, you know, and, and, and move ahead. May, I thank you very much for your time. Uh, I really enjoyed the film, and it's a really a pleasure to uh, speak with you and spend some time with you after reading about you and, uh, uh, you know, watching uh, videos about you for so long. So it's a, it's a real thrill to chat with you, and uh, I thank you for your insight and uh, for the film and for your time to spend with me.
Thank you, Evan. It's uh, it was it was enjoyable. I had a good time, and uh, yeah, especially because I got you on a couple of things you too. You got me. You got me. It's good. I can be gotten. That's all right. So can I. But it was just interesting on the on the uh, Ian McMillan thing, though. That's it. So well, now that I, was good. I, well, yeah. I can promise you, I'll never not know that now. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and if it ever comes up at uh, trivia night somewhere, I'm going to say, you know who taught me that? <laughs> Radar is produced by Evan Toth in partnership with WFDU 89.1 FM and the Vinyl District. You can hear Radar on WFDU 89.1 FM or anytime online at thevinyldistrict.com.